Hi, everyone. Welcome to Terror Talk with Shannon and Kathy. Good afternoon, good evening, and good night. (laughs) (laughs) And we're done. No. Uh, Today on the show, we're going to talk about two true crime documentaries, both available on Netflix. The first is The Ripper about the Yorkshire Ripper from the late 70s. And the second is Night Stalker, The Hunt for a Serial Killer, which is actually about Richard Ramirez. And what happened in the 80s, right? It's mm-hmm. the 80s, yeah. Yeah. So both of these are four-part series available on Netflix, and they actually both have kind of distinct styles, even though they both follow, like, your regular old true crime style that we that we are all used to watching right now. Uh, we're going to talk about The Ripper first. In general, what did you think about it, Kathy? It wasn't what I expected. Oh, yeah. Um, what were you expecting? I, I think that was really more, I mean, I like that they did this because mm-hmm. it's different from, you know, there's sure. so many different true crime docs. Totally. But I think the documentary was really more about the town Mm-hmm. The reaction, the more the how do I want to articulate this cultural, cultural and sort of the the moral implications of like there was a lot of you know it demonstrated the amount of um, victim blaming. It talked about the law enforcement piece and what they didn't do or what they did do. There was a lot of feminist issues that were brought up. At yeah. Point. Like really important mm-hmm. issues around like, you know, women's uh, roles in this or, you know, their, their part in this. And, and so there was less information about who Peter Sutcliffe actually was, um, which I know for a lot of people, they didn't, they didn't like that. But for me, you know, we sensationalize serial killers so much that I thought it was an interesting take on like, how they organized the whole documentary was very different from what I expected. Yeah. I I enjoyed it a lot too, uh, because I am so used to stuff like the night stalker, the hunt for serial killer, which is the other one we watched is more like a TMI. (laughs) It's more like a, a lot of, of stuff about Ramirez. And, and I did like lots of, we'll get into that later. I like lots of parts of it, but this was much more, um, like they could have had interviews, they could have had the interview footage from Sutcliffe, but they chose not to. That's right. And um, I guess it was, people were upset, and you probably read this article too, but that they didn't go with the original title, which right. was, yeah. Yep. So, which was supposed to be about like the town of whatever the town was. I mm-hmm. can't remember the name of the town even, but that was supposed to be the title, like that it was not the Ripper meaning about him, but it was more about the town and that title would have been more accurate. That's right. It would have been more exactly what they did do. Yeah. Because most people I think watched it like many people do. They go Mm -hmm. to watch these true crime docs and they want to learn about this guy, but this was such a different spin. Um, I appreciated it. I did too. Yeah. Uh, so what else to say? I, so it has your usual structure, meaning interviews with people and footage, and then those juxtaposed on top of each other for, um, you know, this, uh, telling the story. I, I thought it was put together really interestingly, even though you were going through learning about all of the murders, uh, there was also all of this, like you said, the 
cultural implications. And then, in, in fact, in the last episode, they even go into, and I thought you might have found this interesting, they go into, uh, by the fourth episode, they've you know caught him and they're talking more about his diagnoses and also whether he was mad or evil. Basically, was mm-hmm. he criminally insane? And so that's where the forensic part of it, which I, you know, I thought of you. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, what I... I think the biggest piece that I took out of it, which had nothing to do with him at all. Um, <laughs> and I tend to go towards the, the, the social piece of it. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if I, I can't remember if this is partially my quotes or quoted straight out of the doc. So I apologize to just take notes when I watch this, but mm-hmm. um, I think it's a blend of the two, the Ripper, you know, women's control by police uh, illuminate the message that it was women's work to change their behavior. It became a much larger political argument. The culture of misogyny and victim blaming created the platform of victim blaming. Um, so which really allowed enforcement to give him free reign and it allowed him to, to kill much longer than he should have. They could have prevented a lot more murders. I thought it was really interesting to listen to some of the women who are now grown, be able to talk about how if they had even been assaulted or attacked, not murdered by him, how the the shame and even admitting that because then people would assume that they were a prostitute. And um, again, just all of the the stuff that goes into um, the the moral implications of of what it means to be a, a socially appropriate woman and sort of demeaning um, well, you know, he was only killing prostitutes. He was killing sex workers and even the implications of that, of objectifying it. So it had a really big social message and sadly to say same, some of what we, we still deal with today. Absolutely. I mean, I, I liked it for that reason. I also like, like I didn't know a lot of the story. Mm-hmm. And so I like it for that reason, you know, whereas I am very used to the American serial killer stories and mm-hmm. reading about them and knowing more than I should about them, this was a story I didn't know. So if you don't know this story, it's a very interesting story for one reason. And then it was well-produced. I, I, you know, it's, um, like you said, it had a clear message and they obviously went a particular direction. They didn't have any interview footage from the actual ripper. So they, they, they obviously distinctly chose to concentrate more on what it did to the town and then, and the people and the victims than, sensationalizing him as a character, uh, the feminist issues, etc. I, I was really struck by some of the timely problems. <laughs> mm-hmm. In other words, there's one point where they talk about this massive index card system that they employed in order to take in all of the tips. They were, you know, they put out a phone number and they said, if you, if you have any information, cause they were really for three episodes of this, they're, they're at a loss. No clue. And they ended up, you know, catching him on a kind of a, a, a lark, which I won't give away, but like, it's kind of like, like a lot of cases are solved actually, which we don't really realize, but but also they were working so hard in all the wrong directions. And that's also what makes good drama for this, sure. I think, is that well, at one point they're showing all of this real life footage, archival footage of this index system. So every time they got a tip, there's the woman that used to do that index system. And she talks about like every time they got a tip, she'd write it down on a card and then they put it in this index system. And at one point the cards and everything was so massive that they had to put reinforcements in on the floor because the guys came in and said, your floor is going to implode. Oh my the gosh. floor of the building was structurally altered 
because it was so heavy from the amount of paper they were generating to attempt to put clues together. It just looked like such a clusterfuck. It, it actually... <laughs> The whole, the whole documentary really makes law enforcement look like a bunch of bumbling idiots. Oh, there's a hoax at one point. Like, we won't go into that because it's like, you know, I don't want to ruin it for people. But, oh, my goodness. So, I just, can we go to the mental health piece for a second? No. Okay. <laughs> I know this show's not about that at all. Go ahead. And I don't know if you had anything left from that, but um, you were asking me earlier when we started talking about the diagnosis and, you know, was he criminally insane and blah, blah, blah. You know, this is where I tend to have a, a really big reaction. Um, That's be- why I said it. Right. Because <laughs> <laughs> I'm looking for a Kathy yeah. big reaction. Because Let me turn down your mic. Hold we on. We tend to, um, there's a lot of pop psychology around, and we've even had episodes on this, how someone who has paranoid schizophrenia that equates with dangerousness. And therefore, you know, we have the mentally ill component. We have the dangerous component. And therefore he's, he isn't culpable. Um, he isn't competent. He, um, Here's my thought, and I used to work with people who had paranoid schizophrenia, some of which uh, did commit heinous crimes once uh, during a psychotic episode. You know, they say that primarily schizophrenia in and of itself is not a dangerous mental illness, but if somebody has command auditory hallucinations or, you know, paranoid delusions to the extent that it's commanding them to do something to satiate that feeling, then they can be dangerous. This is a man who's convicted of killing 13 women and attempting to murder seven others in a year long spree. I don't know any of the men and women that I worked with who would be that organized with that mental illness, with that diagnosis um, that could commit something so calculated and intentional and that's just bullshit. Well, and I will mention that because uh, there was mutilation, there was staging the body. There was some very, just so our audience knows, there were some very specific rituals that the Ripper had that would denote an organizational quality as well. And And just the way the murders were. Right. You know. And so, you know, again, I'm going to go to that social piece in my mind where I goes, if this would have been a a cultural minority, a person of color, uh, whatever, would they have been so quick, quick to say, well, here's the excuse. He was very mentally ill. Or would they have just said he's a criminal? Because I look at this and I go, when I think of some of my client, my patients who killed a family member or even a perfect stranger due to having paranoid schizophrenia right oftentimes when they were found when police were called they were in complete shock and terror they were um you can they were catatonic there wasn't this like oh i'm gonna get up and go to the next one it doesn't work like that so i I, it angers me (laughs) to see that to see that this was their justification yes well, and he was killing prostitutes, and we right. know, and we know how that goes over, like like as if they're not human. Yeah, you know, and and that's how they got drug into the hoax that happens is that cultural vision of yep. uh, killing prostitutes. Um, 
you know, and, and this whole, uh, the really interesting portion of this documentary is when they go into a lot of discussion around women needing to change their behavior because someone's killing prostitutes, right. you know, instead and you have of, to go out with a man, make sure you are out in the, yeah, yeah they weren't allowed. Yeah. To. I mean, it's a, it's a catch 22. I realize the difficult situation that someone's in when they want you to be safe and be protected and they want to protect you, but then they're also saying like the victim has to change their behavior in order to be protected. Like right. it's a real catch 22. Like I understand the the conundrum there. Sure. Like they didn't want more women being killed. So just stay the fucking side is basically what they wanted to say. Meanwhile, all of this, um, anti-feminist sentiment was, <laughs> was yeah. happening all at the same time. So, um, I mean, I just look at the, this is a, the, you know, a, an individual who there was a, there was a level of groupthink, misogyny, narcissism around, like he was, he hated women. Um, there's nothing schizophrenic about this. There's nothing mentally disordered. I mean, there's character logical and there's probably some mental illness in there if we want to get really specific, but this is, this to me is a cultural piece. Um, this is a learned behavior. This was something modeled to him or something happened to him that this was, this was his reaction and, and the best way to annihilate, you know, the female species is take out the most vulnerable, which are, which are your prostitutes. No one's going to miss them. Well, and we've talked about this before. It's simply easy to get a prostitute in your car mm -hmm. without a fight. Right. I mean, it, it really boils down to the, the simplicity of target rich, Yep. you know? Um, and if someone is not comfortable in it, 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 part of their ritual or part of what they're wanting to do in, in their violent rituals as a serial killer, if that does not involve capture, chase, all of that being physically confrontive, then prosti prostitutes, unfortunately, are a, a, an easy get. And I imagine that's why. Yep. Plus the time, late 70s. I mean, I don't know. Um, in contrast... You know, Richard Ramirez liked to see the frightened look. He right. would often he would often bang on things to have the person turn around so that they could so he could see them and look in their eyes when he yep. was killing them. So it's a very different mm -hmm. situation. So I feel like with um with the Yorkshire Ripper, it was like a like a more of um like a revenge. Mm -hmm. fantasy sort of thing where Ramirez really was a, I mean, not that the Yorkshire Ripper wasn't sadistic, of course he was, but there was something very specific and intentional about his victim pool and, and um, his access where, like you said, with Ramirez, it was, he was, not, it's not so much that he hated women. He, he did, but his, his motive was really, he loved the, to torture yeah. And uh, torment. Well, and he's a sexual sadist as well. So right. the Yorkshire Ripper was not having sex with that's any right. of his victims. And Ramirez was a rapist. And right. so that's a very different thing. Also, the Yorkshire Ripper was organized and was killing for five years. Whereas Ramirez was like, uh, got became very disorganized mm -hmm. and flamed out because he wasn't really, he was so delusional that he didn't think he would, he, like anything he did was even being seen. Right. And so he was leaving clues and shit all over the place like yep. really um really disorganized by mm -hmm. the end so mm -hmm. lots of big differences um and like you said 
They didn't find him insane, though, the Ripper. Mm-hmm. Um, but they, they, they found him not to be not insane. But then when they were, it kind of looked to me like when they, then then when they sentenced him, they sent him to like a, a cushier environment, like mm-hmm. the mental, not the mental institution, but like something like that. I just remember them saying at the end, like talking about that. So, and his wife apparently had paranoid schizophrenia. Mm. So I probably would have been too, if I was married to someone like that. Confusing. Yeah. A little mm-hmm. confusing. She jokes. You can't get paranoid schizophrenia from a loved one. <laughs> <laughs> FYI, in case you didn't know. It little, doesn't develop that way. A little joke. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I in, I would ultimately recommend this. I enjoyed it. I thought it was interesting or a unique sort of, you know, a lot of these things are really boring and the same. So this had a, a unique bent to it. And they were going to call it, I, I mentioned this before, but it couldn't come up with the name. They were going to call it Once Upon a Time in Yorkshire. And like you said before we started recording, that would have made so much more sense. Yeah, but it's not as catchy. No, it's not as catchy. And the Ripper is in our, you know, these true crime docs are like what everybody's eating up. So they wanted you to watch it. And that's part of the problem too. I, is this, I hear it. Yeah, I mean, you know, I get it. Sensationalizing their marketing, but when you actually watch the product, you realize they aren't actually mm-hmm. sensationalizing. So it's cool. Uh, not that I am not susceptible to sensationalism because I am, mm-hmm. I am human and you know, I watch as much as the, I mean, I watch as much as the sensational shit as the next person. I mean, God, we've been caught up in, we've been susceptible to sensationalism in the last few years in our government more than ever oh my before. Gosh. I've managed to avoid talk a lot about, of it. Talk but, about giving attention to things that don't need to be given attention to, but yeah. you know, you get pulled in. You totally do. And so we definitely relate to those of you who have felt pulled in because we're not, we're not, you know, we are not 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 susceptible to that so night stalker the hunt for a serial killer also on netflix also a four-part series also interviews wrapped with footage but in this one they did a sort of interesting uh the tie-ins between scenes and the way they used uh story shifts visually because there's a way that you need you kind of need to tell a story through it right you need to track what's going on what they did was they shot the real cops in present day where you're seeing them interviewed and stuff, but the interstitials, the things that are coming between the story to track are all like footage of them riding in cars and stuff, (laughs) which I thought was kind of creative. Yeah. You know, I just had such, um, so much (laughs) empathy for Gil Carrillo during this whole case. Frank Mm -hmm. Salerno, this was like, this is like his thing. He was a great character in this though, too. I I mean, I like hearing the cops tell the story. Salerno, he, but he'd been doing this, you know, he helped solve the Hillside Strangler mystery, which was, you know, prior to, that was in the seventies. He was brought in to help. He was brought in, but Gil Carrillo was like, uh, what what am I on? Well, and then they're like, yeah, you should be on this. And he's like, wait, what? Yeah. (laughs) And so I I really did like hearing that all of that from their point of view. Mm -hmm. And also not so much as a story about Ramirez, although obviously um, by episode four, they, they catch him. And then it's really about Ramirez that fourth episode. But before that I did really, um, the parts of it that I enjoyed were just hearing from the cops themselves, their story, what it was like when I was doing this series for our show, that was the part that really captivated me the most about reading Ramirez's book was, um, I had a lot of empathy for 
the way their lives were really compromised. Um, Carrillo's wife, who does a series of interviews over this documentary, and man, what a strong woman. You know, she really stood beside him, but also stood her ground and said, well, while you're doing this, the kids and I have to move out. We can't, we're exhausted. And part of that was safety. They didn't know if, you know, Ramirez would show up at their house, but she just couldn't deal with it. She never left him, but she had to physically leave because he was so in this and she knew it wasn't good for her or the family if they stayed. Um, I also think she just couldn't watch it watch him kill himself over it no she couldn't i mean and that's what i mean it was just emotionally exhausting for her to be there and then there was potential safety issues um but i uh i doing the research for the series that we did i think gil carrillo's role in this i just had a lot of empathy for the other thing that i would say um about the documentaries it really paints how much they had to um dodge the media and the media giving away the case for a good story, which mm-hmm. we know happens a lot, but um, the piece about the Avia shoe and all mm-hmm. of that. Um, and just basically saying, if you, if you broadcast this, this case could be over. Mm-hmm. And that war was, that was a really interesting piece for me too. Yeah. It's interesting. Cause at one point the governor gives away a lot of the case and they get mad about it. And then at another part, some detective leaked some stuff and then they were happy about that. <laughs> Like he says, you know, oh, the interview says, like, what do you think about, you know, how do you think they got this piece of information? And he's like, I don't know, a detective probably told him and I want to shake his hand, whoever he is, because like I wanted them to have that. But then later in the story, they talk about how the governor at the time gave away a bunch of like things that only the killer would know. And so thus tipping the killer to what they had mm-hmm. and they got really mad about that. So it just I, it really if you're looking deep into this, it really shows how the police would like to use the media, you know, for, for, and that's appropriate. I think they, they use the media to further their investigation when they need to. So that's the cop's perspective. Now the media's perspective, of course, is that the public needs to know and we deserve to know what's going on and full disclosure, et cetera. But I think all of us as, 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 you know, intelligent human beings know that that's not always the smartest way to go and that cops need to titrate that information from that's right. us. Well, and, and the, the piece that you're talking about regarding the detective, like they were not as upset when the detective had leaked information. This was at a time where jurisdictions were not used to consulting with one another either. So I think that when they start, when they realized the importance of crossing dur- jurisdictions to add that information up, that ended up being very useful to them. And um, detective, detectives are going to have a different way of talking about this than a media who wants a good story. Yeah, absolutely. And he was assuming that it was another detective. Yeah. He, he doesn't really know who leaked it, but he's like, oh, probably detective because it was a smart move. Of course, That's he right. says it was a detective. Right. <laughs> it was a smart move. So it must have been a detective because all of us detectives are fabulous. But um, and I, I hear you on that. But mm-hmm. uh, so the first episode is really the episode about how they get to deciding that he's a serial killer. So the cops basically take you through all of the 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 killer and rapist by the way like take you through a bunch of that the second one is about sort of getting to the first uh piece pieces of real evidence they end up getting a footprint for i mean most people that listen to the show probably watch a lot of true crime so the ramirez case is not exactly a mystery so they get to the footprint part for those of you who know 
Um, it's also a great documentary if you don't know the case because they literally take you through the whole thing. They do all the nuts and bolts and facts along the way from the police perspective. So if you don't know the case, it's it's actually four hours of like, you, then you'll know the case mostly for the most part. Um, and then episode three is how he gets caught. And then episode four is really about him and the trial and et cetera. So it's broken up very clearly. I did want to actually mention, I don't know if you know this, Kathy, but there's one of the interviewees in this Night Stalker documentary is someone I saw who was the subject and made a, a really good documentary that I saw at Sundance last year. So Zoe Turr is one of the people that is interviewed for this story. Now, Zoe... Um, was a is most famous for being a journalist she she appears in lots of documentaries about journalism because um although she was born robert tur and lived in los angeles um in the 70s etc very she was very famously known as co-founding the los angeles news service alongside um her ex-wife marika gerard and the news service was founded in 1983 and pioneered the sort of 24-hour news cycle very famous for the coverage during the oj simpson trial and the um very very famous for covering the helicopter footage of the bronco mm, okay i'm looking um, her up right now so the I just wanted to mention her because when I was watching that, I was like, oh my God, <laughs> it's her. And I was at Sundance last year where they debuted their film called Whirly Bird. And I happened to be able to score a ticket and go to see it. So it was, uh, so what Zoe has is all of her footage from those times. Wow. Wow. So, so they were able to, you know, capture their story, the husband and wife story of, of their journalism team and, and sort of how that story unfolded and how they created that company. And it's, it's a really great documentary um, about that. Plus as part of that documentary, you're getting all this archival footage of the OJ Simpson pursuit, the 1992 riots, all this stuff that was really hitting big in the 80, you know, 80s and early 90s, plus um, the peaks and valleys of her marriage and, and the suffering that went on in their marriage and their personal stories, and they, like, get into fights. <laughs> mm -hmm. And she's not always, um, uh, she's not always, she doesn't look good in this. You know, okay. there's, there's, uh, they get into some fights and there are parts of this documentary where I was like, and at the time I thought it was, I thought she was a he because in the documentary it, she was still presenting to the world as a man mm -hmm. as, as Bob. And so in, when I was watching, I was like, he can fuck off because <laughs> he was really bad to her. Like, wow. like he gets really obsessed and really whoosh i was like oh what a prick you know yeah. <laughs> just watching it so then i met this um i met this premiere right and i watched this movie and really great because i i remember some of this stuff and so really interesting and then i'm at the premiere and she walks up oh wow with her ex-wife was there too and i thought that's bob and that and i don't know anything about these people right 
So she walks up to the Q&A and this person, Bob, I've been watching in this movie is actually Zoe. And there she is. And so she talked about her transition and what that's been like. And of course, a lot about the film, mostly about the film, but it, it, but she chose also to address the fact that she's now presenting to the world as a woman mm-hmm. and as herself. And so it was this really interesting evening for me because I, I, I let- do remember her on the, the yeah. documentary. Oh yeah yeah, 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 yeah. Now that you're looking, you're uh, looking now that at I'm some look, pictures. I'm looking at her, and I, well, I'm looking. There's a there's a still shot of the oh. interview, so I do remember her. Yeah. Right. Yeah. No. I just I was like, wait, that's her, and then I just went googling. I'm like, that's that movie I saw, and then I looked it up, and then I was like, wow, I'll just talk about that documentary because I would actually say like, go and watch it because there's all, especially if you're a Los Angelian. Or you have anything interesting, like if you like Los Angeles or you like Los Angeles history, because the amount of footage that is in that from the 80s and 90s is really staggering and it's really good. So she's also in the docuseries OJ Made in America. Okay. So she does tend to get interviewed because of this footage and because Mm -hmm. of what an amazing, you know, part she and her ex-wife played in the stories. I can only imagine what it would be like to be someone following cases like this, like being the journalist on these cases and just talk about the rabbit holes. You obsessive, obsessive. And I could see why it could result in divorces and result in, you know, just people like the other partner feeling like there's an affair going on with the work. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Well, and the, the ex-wife was a part of it. She's in the helicopter with him. She's like, you know, so they get into some really, and what I liked about the documentary was that it was, uh, what's the name of the documentary? Unflinching. It was like, no, that's not what it's called. Let me just finish my sentence. I'll I'll, I'll tell you, but it was unflinching. In other words, like, like I said, she's not portrayed well, (laughs) always Right. right. Obsessive and angry and volatile a lot of times. And, and uh confrontive and aggressive mm-hmm. in a lot of in a lot of what happens but it's but it's but she lets it all hang out and you see what it really did to them mm-hmm. and what it and also how she was able to get all this footage and build this empire and do this great work and how that was necessary yeah. but you know she does come off like a prick Oof. it's called a whirly bird okay it sounds familiar okay maybe you talked about it last year i might have talked about it during sundance yeah, because I would have brought it up for you know because of the Los Angeles ties. Um, I remember that I rem I remember this movie. Like I haven't seen it, but I remember yeah, the title. It's a doc I and yeah. I, I guess I didn't realize that that's what it was about. Yeah. Well, I, I as I will in the next couple of weeks, I talk about a lot of stuff that I see at Sundance and no one has any frame of reference. And then a year later, it all comes out, and I go like, "Yeah, I talked about that before," but mm-hmm. never. It's always this really isolating experience, actually, to talk about Sundance stuff because you see all this great shit and nobody knows about it yet. So it's like you want to tell everybody and nobody cares. <laughs> but mm. anyway, the doc um, was good and I would recommend it. And if you liked her interviews in this uh, Night Soccer series, that's another place to go with the Los Angeles folklore. Cool. Yeah. Did you ultimately like this documentary Night Stalker or what did you, Uh, you know, I think I liked the first couple episodes and then I felt, and maybe it's because I've just done so much on Ramirez that it boring. It wasn't anything I, 
I didn't know. And even with the detectives, because I had read so much on him, I knew their stories too. So I'm probably not a good person to ask just because to me, I felt myself getting distracted and not super into it. So for both of these, I had to watch them twice because the first time through, I found out that I got to the end and I wasn't paying enough attention. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of like I had a cursory exposure to them and then and then I watched them a second time and paid attention and took notes. And that's how I'm able to speak about them okay. now. So I don't know if that's my true crime documentary fatigue. Maybe. Partly. So I'm going to attribute it partly to that. We are, as a culture, inundated with this stuff. And I know some people have an infinite capacity for it and watch it constantly. And it's their favorite thing, like you and me in horror movies, I guess. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, but... I, I have a little bit of true crime fatigue because we're seeing the same structure over and over and over again. So when a unique one comes out, it's like, oh, thank God, somebody did something different. Right. Um, the other piece is I know a lot about Ramirez too. Not Certainly not as many intimate details as you do. But so that when it got to the Ramirez part, I was bored. But I did find that I had never really watched a lot of interviews with the cops and stuff. So that was interesting to mm -hmm. me. Um, and they tried to make it interesting. So the Yorkshire, the Ripper for me was more interesting because I just don't know that story. Right. And like, like we said, it just, it, the presentation of it was different. Yes, there was. Uh, yeah, exactly. Like similar enough for everyone to be familiar with it. In other words, it's interviews and footage. Yep. And so that's familiar. That's a familiar formula, but the, the, the voice it had, I mm -hmm. think is different. Yep. But uh, I mean, recommend, yeah, watch them. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, mm -hmm. yeah, I, I don't know how to recommend them really. I mean, and, and it's a docu-series. So you, I mean, it's, it's not like you have to sit hours. To, yeah, you can watch it a little bit at a time. Which and, is what I did. Yep, me too. Yeah, because I don't, I don't binge The Yorkshire would have been a lot to binge. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot to yeah. unpack. Yeah. Whereas a Night Stalker, you could probably binge that one. Yeah. Pretty easily. because it's, re, it's retreaded material. Yep. So thank you so much for listening to our show today. Uh, if you have any questions or comments, please, please let us know on any of our social media. And um, we thank you so much for being listeners. This has been an episode of Terror Talk. My name is Shannon. And I'm Kathy. Sleep safe, everyone. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Terror Talk. Please check out our Patreon page, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. We'd love to engage with you as part of our community. Please take a moment to leave us a comment on any of our social media. Thank you so much for listening. And once again, sleep safe.